News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Gas prices this morning in the Metro Vancouver area hovering around 170 a liter. Now, that's a bit of a relief. Can't even believe I'm saying that compared to what we saw previously, right? When we were hitting 230, 240 a liter over the past year. So we'll take this right now. But what can we expect for 2023? It's been a lot of stress on our wallets and our budgets. Is gas going to also be a continued stressor on our wallets? Joining us now is Jean-Thomas Bernard, who's an economics professor at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Now, what do you see happening with the price of oil right now? Is, is it holding steady out there? Well, you know, I think the the the, uh, the year 2022 uh, taught us, you know, some lesson about humility when we make uh, oil for gas. So <laughs> we better be careful here. So if we look at the uh, what we call the basic, that is the demand and the supply. On the demand side, the major determinant is the state of the world economy. So uh, obviously when the, the economy is strong, you know, this has a net impact on, on oil demand, and when it slows down, it, uh, you know, the reverse occurs. Uh, because you know, uh, uh, all of transportation mode uh, depends, ver- still depends very strongly on, uh, on oil. So, you know, uh, the, the state of the economy. Now, with respect to the state of the world economy, uh, as you know, right now, uh, uh, most central banks have uh, increased interest rates in order to uh, control inflation. Now, uh, this is not a, a one-to-one uh, uh, operation. Sometimes, you know, the, uh, the, it, it does not work enough. Inflation keeps going on. Or sometimes, you know, the heat uh, is too strong and the uh, economy slow down. So we don't know exactly how this will evolve. And also here there is the uncertainty about how the Chinese economy will evolve. You know, they were uh, under fairly uh, strong uh, COVID restriction. This had an impact on the supply chain. Uh, now they have removed it. But uh, we know that uh, the uh, COVID is spreading. So uh, what would occur there, we don't know. Right. So on the demand side, uh, you know, at this stage, we expect roughly demand to keep going at that level. Now, on the supply side, uh, we must recall that about 55% of oil is produced by uh, OPEP uh, country. And, uh, you know, this is a, a cartel of country that uh, coordinate their action to uh, influence the world price on the supply side. And the uh, uh, major player there, obviously, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we, overall, we consume about 100 million barrels a day, and uh, Saudi Arabia contribute about 10 million. And the next big guy there is as important, Russia. Russia produces also uh, 10 million barrels a day. In in the year that just when when uh, that we just you know completed, uh, th- there was some restriction on the oil movement from 
Russia. And we, we thought this would have a fairly significant impact. It had an impact for a, a, a while on the price, but basically Russia kept producing uh, roughly the same amount of oil. They found uh, new buyers, you know, uh, most mm-hmm. India, to some extent China and, and other few countries. Obviously, they were selling at, at lower price, but in terms of uh, overall output, it did not change that much. Right. So uh, we know that Russia needs the money. You know, they need the money from that to, uh, to conduct the war. So, so uh, are, are we saying that that's going to continue? Like, is uncertainty going to be the word for 2023? Yes, yes, definitely. You know, uh, oil is, uh, is the, the, con- the commodity that is most traded at the world scale. You know, oil is, we have a, a world oil market. And uh, uh, anything that happened either on the demand side or the supply side at the world level influence us right here in Canada or at our at our pumps, you know, directly. Canada is a fairly large producer. We produce uh, more than five million barrels a day, so we we are the fourth largest producer. But uh, basically, uh, even uh, we don't have much influence with respect to the world price. Here in Canada, at, at this stage, we produce as much as we can. And we have some, as you know, we have some delivery problem, that is to reach the world market. But uh, overall, you know, we we, uh, we have to take the price of oil as it is as it occurs, you know, at, that, at, at the right. world level. But at that, that for us, though, for our pocketbooks, then we just need to brace ourselves. That's one more thing that we might be paying more money for this year. Uh, yes, you know, uh, it's very... It is a very, very difficult exercise to uh, to forecast the price of oil because it is dependent of so many factors. They are the basic, as I told you, but there is also all the what we call the geopolitical factors, you know. So, uh, and we are not, you know, uh, yeah, we don't have a, a a very clear view as to how this will evolve, particularly in the current situation when there is this war going on between the. Russia and Ukraine, and, and there, you know, uh, who will like to make a guess as to how it will end, you know, and when we don't exactly. Know. Just more uncertainty. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, have a nice day. You too. That is Jean Thomas Bernard, economics professor at the University of Ottawa, talking about more uncertainty for oil and gas prices for 2023. I mean, they really do fluctuate, don't they? A couple of months ago, we were looking at 240 a liter, and then we're just so happy that it's now around a dollar seventy a liter. A couple of weeks ago, it was like a dollar sixty a liter. So yeah, it, it, we get a bit of whiplash, and really these days. That kind of stress on our wallets and on our budgets, bank accounts, is not something we need because it feels like everything else is still going up, up, up in price. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Massey Tunnel Project, the replacement project, is huge. Billions of dollars. But you know what there isn't money for in the budget, apparently? A new overpass, a second crossing of Highway 99 that is right when you come out of the tunnel, if you are heading southbound, right there on River Road. Everybody would like it. City of Delta would like it. City of Richmond supports it. Lots of residents would say, yes, this makes perfect sense. But for some reason, it is not a part of the current drawings in the tunnel replacement plan. Well, the city of Delta would like to change that. Joining us now to talk about this is Dylan Kruger, who's a Delta City Councillor. Thank you very much for joining us. Simi, thanks for having me. Uh, were you surprised to find out this wasn't in there? 
Uh, we were quite surprised. Obviously, we've been engaging very closely with the Ministry of Transportation for a number of years on this project, uh, both the previous iteration, which was a 10-lane bridge, and now the 8-lane tunnel. In both versions of the project, uh, our staff-to-staff conversations and early council conversations indicated that we would be getting that second exit out of Ladner, uh, reconnecting the historic River Road. So this is obviously a very strategic connection for us and our city and our growth plans to make sure that infrastructure is keeping up with the number of residents our city is accepting. Uh, so we were quite surprised to see that it was not part of the uh, the eventual project that's been released to the public. Yeah, what kind of a difference do you think that overpass could make? Uh, well, just today, um, a- any day that you have uh, residents in Ladner uh, traveling the tunnel, because you have the one exit coming out of Ladner, basically every- everything funnels on to Ladner Trunk Road, which funnels on to Highway 17A, which eventually funnels on to Highway 99. So you do get quite a bit of backup on Ladner Trunk Road. And if you're traveling southbound through the tunnel, you can actually see on the right-hand side today a significant growth in the, that polygon development uh, in the Hampton, Hampton Cove area. That development is immediately adjacent to what would be what we were hoping would be uh, the second exit. So now those folks are traveling all the way uh, through Ladner, uh, clogging up Ladner Trunk Road, trying to get onto the highway. Yeah, that's what always got me about that, right? Just they can see the highway. It's right there. But for them to get on it, it's going to be 10 minutes for them to try to go all the way down and get around. It just doesn't make any sense. That's right. And as we try to create, you know, livable communities where people have easy access uh, to and from their homes to, to, to get to shops and services, that's the type of planning situation that we try to avoid. So we've been having discussions ever since the original project was announced back in 2013. So we've had basically 10 years of planning discussions internally uh, focused on having that second crossing. Okay, and so what is the excuse here? Like, what is the cost of doing this? We estimate that it'd be about $40 million to put the overpass in. Now, keep in mind, this is a project that's now estimated to be over $4 billion. We're talking about really less than 1% of the cost of construction, which by all accounts is is, is a rounding error uh, with a project of of this scope. So what we've seen in the past, whether it was, you know, look at Highway 91 and the Alex Fraser Bridge, uh, that was done in stages, and they only just, a couple of months ago, completed uh, the interchange upgrades. What we want to avoid is a situation where a project is phased, the tunnel comes in and say, okay, maybe, you know, five, ten years later this goes in. Well, guess what? The cost has also tripled in that time as well. So from an economies of scale perspective, we just feel it makes a lot more sense to have the entire project completed in one scope of work. Okay, what has been the reaction, though? I understand you've brought this up with the province. The city of Delta has done that. What has been the reaction? We have. So uh, both the previous council... And the one that was elected uh, in October, just a couple of months ago, we passed unanimous motions. So we are very united on this, uh, calling for the province to reinstate uh, the, the planning work for that second exit uh, on River Road. Uh, the ministry is aware. The minister is aware. We believe the premier is aware. So we're hopeful. I also am sitting as vice chair of our uh, Metro Vancouver task force on Massey Tunnel Replacement, which is chaired by Mayor Brody, uh, Mayor Brody from Richmond. Uh, our task force is also united on this. So we see regional benefits to ensuring that this project is done well and, and complete the first time. So we'll certainly be continuing our advocacy efforts when we have opportunities to meet uh, with the Minister of Transportation later this year. What kind of potential development could you see happening then on the other side of River Road there as you come through the tunnel southbound? I mean, if you connect those two, that would make a real difference over there. It would make a significant difference. Like you said, Simi, it probably would shave 10 to 12 minutes off of commute times. It would also have to reestablish <coughs> a historic connection between River Road West and River Road East. We also see this as a key part of our, uh, of our cycling plan to ensure there's a good cycling route 
uh, and connecting residents uh, on both sides of Ladner, reconnecting them together again. Because there are residents, we don't think about it because it's a smaller population, that are now orphaned on the other side uh, of Highway 99 uh, where the new casino is. There's a whole development over there, isn't there? Like a River West development? Yep, the River West development. There's there's there's, uh, townhouses, there's condominiums. Uh, so that would mean better access to amenities in Ladner for those residents as well. Okay, so what are the next steps, Dylan? Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, we have our first meeting of our Metro Vancouver Task Force on the Massey Tunnel this week. We will be getting our new members up to speed. Uh, the mayor has written a letter, Mayor Harvey, to uh, Premier Eby and Minister Fleming, uh, outlining our concerns. Uh, that, that letter will be tabled for our committee, and we will be looking for opportunities to engage directly with uh, the minister at this point uh, on this subject and hoping uh, that we can find a resolution so that this very small rounding error of the project can be included in the greater scope of a $4 billion project and provide this vital connection, uh, not just for Ladner residents, but also for the region. And what are the options to Delta if it is? Now, I remember this became an issue on Highway 1 as well when Langley wanted that 208th overpass and it wasn't part of the budget. And so they decided to try to go ahead and build it themselves. Like, what are the options for Delta here? Yeah, so obviously Delta has, has options uh, for funding themselves. Of course, every municipality comes into these really difficult choices. We have a $350 million annual budget as a city, and we're focused on delivering parks and recreation improvements and roadway improvements within the scope of, of municipal work. So we certainly want to be focused on our municipal work and uh, considering the, the really low, low cost of this project and the fact that it was included in the original bridge proposal. So this is not a new concept that we're asking for. When you look at uh, this project, it, it's advertised as improvements to the interchanges on both sides of the river. Well, we see this as an, a, a significant improvement uh, to the existing interchange. So we, we would like to continue to be involved in the planning process, but we're really looking for the province to continue with their previous commitment to fund this, this overpass. All right, fingers crossed. We'll uh, keep us updated on how it goes. Thank you, Simi. Will do. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on in Surrey? The policing situation remains in limbo. Taxpayers are confused about what this is going to cost them. But here's the thing. You can count on this costing you regardless of whether the city stays with the RCMP or continues with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. There's been this war of words going back and forth with the mayor, Brenda Locke, and her Surrey Connect majority, and then those who already work for the Surrey Police Service. The mayor said last week that continuing with the transition would require a one-time 55% property tax hike in 2023. That's a lot of money for homeowners out there. But the other side is saying, well, wait a minute, you're just scaring people. That's not the case because even staying with the RCMP is going to come with costs too. So we thought, let's break all of this down with what is going on here. Joining us now is Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. I I can't recall any other city in Canada changing its police force, at least not a major uh, city. So this is a a very unusual uh, situation there. And with your opening, I was I was reminded of the old phrase attributed to Benjamin Disraeli that in politics, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's what we're getting down to now is the statistics part of this debate. I can't really evaluate the tax claims that Brenda Locke has made. It sounds uh, unusually high to me. And as you point out, there are going to be costs. 
costs associated with the transition. I think it's recognized that, that the Surrey Police Force will be a more expensive proposition than sticking with the RCMP. But going back to the RCMP is also going to entail quite serious one-time costs in terms of severance, broken contracts, and and so forth. And this is what Solicitor General Mike Farnworth is going to have to sort of figure out as he makes the final decision on behalf of the city. This is what has fascinated me about this entire unfolding story, just watching it over the last four you know, plus years now, is that it was always going to cost more money. I just don't know if Surrey taxpayers realized that situation that they find themselves in now. They may not have, and there, and there may it may have been worthwhile to to have those costs to have your own police force rather than a federal police force over which you don't have final sort of authority or jurisdiction. Um, so it may have been worthwhile to to have your own police forces. Most large cities in Canada do have their own city or um, municipal uh, police forces. So it may have been worth spending a bit more money to have your own police force. Uh, I'm not sure again though how much people realized that this was going to cost, nor did people realize necessarily when they voted for Glenn Delock, how much it would cost to undo uh, the transition that is is now well underway. There is also a a time-honoured political tradition, as you well know, that when there's a new administration, you love to blame all these big one-time costs at the beginning of your administration on the previous administration, right? Absolutely. And uh, this this is, I think, part and parcel of, of that. And, and unfortunately for the NDP government in Victoria, which has to make the final decision, the election didn't produce a sort of a clear consensus of what the people of Surrey want. The vote between Doug Callum and, and Brenda Locke was almost identical at just about 30 percent. And the other candidates who said the issue needs to be studied more got about the same amount of vote as well. So the citizens had three options, uh, proceed, go back or study it some more. And they split almost evenly on those options. And that makes it difficult for Mike Farnworth to figure out what the people of Surrey actually want. Is it too late for the province at this point or would it be unprecedented for the province to say, listen, we need to know once and for all what's going on here. Could they say we're going to do a mail-in referendum or a mail-in plebiscite on something and just and, and administer it that way? They could. I don't get the sense that that's what they want to do. Um, and, and that might produce even more uncertainty. I, again, if, if the election is any indicator, um, the people of Surrey aren't quite sure of what to make of all of these claims and, and counterclaims either. So I think Mike Farnworth will want to make the decision. I don't think he likes the precedent of, of a city ch- changing its police force and then flip-flopping back oh, yeah. the other direction. I don't think he wants to set that uh, up as a precedent. Um, he's got a very difficult decision to make. I would say so, yes. Uh, you know, when it comes to municipal police forces, like what do we know about that in terms of costs? I mean, isn't one of the reasons why communities keep the RCMP, is it because it is cheaper? It is cheaper. My understanding is that it is somewhat subsidized by at the federal level to have the um, uh, the RCMP as your force of jurisdiction. Um, and we do know from across Canada and, and in the United States that uh, police budgets steadily go up. Um, of course, everybody wants a good police force. Everybody wants to feel safe in their city. The police have a lot of leverage on, on city governments. Uh, which typically don't have strong party discipline to leverage them for for more funding. And so while we can sort of 
project the costs of the new Surrey police force for the next few years, uh, inevitably that force will come back and, and ask for more money down the road, right. more officers, more equipment, and so on and so forth, because that's what police forces in Canada do. Yeah, exactly. So what would what do you think Surrey residents should do here? They should just brace themselves? I think so. I think they're obviously in a bit of a pickle here, having voted for Doug McCallum four years ago and Brenda Locke last fall. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're brace yourself. <laughs> brace yourself. And, <laughs> and I don't think they've really taken control of the situation in part because it's a complicated issue. And uh, it's hard for it's hard for me to make sense of what's going on. And, and I'm sure people who don't follow it as much um, thought, oh, well, this is going to be relatively easy to get a new police force or relatively easy to go back to the RCMP. Far from it. I think it was sold as being too easy. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think in that or- original election four years ago, it was presented as this very simple choice for people to make. And I remember even at the time talking about it being like, no, this is complicated. But I don't think people like to hear that things are going to be complicated. Absolutely. And my sense was that Doug McCallum never really sold the idea on on either its merits as, a, as, as public safety or on its merits as a cost factor. It's just that big cities have their own police forces and really great cities like New York have TV shows made about their police forces. So we should have one, too. Uh, But it worked. That's the thing. People like simple messages. And that worked. It absolutely did work. I don't know if it was good policy, but it was really good politics on his part. Um, For his part, he couldn't sell it again, though. And, and earn re-election. Right. But we could argue that Brenda Locke also kept it simple by saying, we're just simply going to get rid of it. And she managed to make that work, whereas the other candidates in that election had more, well, more complicated, more kind of challenging scenarios. Well, yes, they added a little bit of nuance to this discussion. <laughs> it came up Yes, short. they did. Nuance got lost in this debate a long time ago. And I think what we've seen as time went along is that it got increasingly polarized. Um, of course, Doug McCallum's incident with an outraged citizen uh, further inflamed the situation. And, I, and I, I take Brenda Locke's new tax increase of 55% as part of this polarization of this issue, which has seized the city for the last almost five years now. Well, you could write a paper on this. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Hamish, thank you. You're welcome, Simi. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Yes, in Surrey, it is still a mess. Waiting for that decision from the provincial government about, okay, well, are you going to go back to the RCMP? Are we going to allow that to happen? Or do you have to continue with the transition plan that is in place to go to a municipal police force? Listen, regard, there are no easy answers. There are no simple answers with this. It's going to cost money no matter which way this goes. Stay with the RCMP, that's going to cost money. Hamish was absolutely right. The severance that has to get paid out, everything that has to be converted, all of that money, that, like, that somebody has to pay for all of that. If you, you know, switch, continue on with the transition, yep, that's going to cost money too. There is no easy answer here. But I would love to hear from Surrey residents on this about how you're feeling on this whole situation. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, the B.C. government is waiving the upfront application and assessment fees for internationally educated nurses. What kind of an impact do we think this is going to have? Joining us now to talk about it is David Eby, Premier of British Columbia. Thank you very much for being here, Premier Eby. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. What kind of a difference do you think this is going to make? Uh, Well, uh, 
uh, a lot of this is in the hands of the regulator and the assessment authority, but we know there are big numbers involved. So currently there are 2,000 uh, nurses who have applied uh, to practice in British Columbia that are coming from international jurisdictions. Uh, and there's uh, 5,000 nurses that have indicated the level of interest in coming to British Columbia. And, uh, and that, that could have a significant impact in the experience of people in hospital, uh, whether nurses themselves or they'll have more colleagues. Uh, or, uh, or patients that are looking for care. Um, the current wait time for those 2,000 people who are in that queue uh, is, believe it or not, is three years. And so the announcement yesterday was about shortening that time. Uh, we've been working with the regulator, Minister Dix, and uh, the Ministry of Health, and uh, the a wait time will be shortened to between four to nine months, which is a significant shift. And in addition, those international nurses don't have to pay their fees up front anymore. Uh, we'll cover them up front just to remove any of those barriers. But it's also for nurses who are on the sideline who used to practice in British Columbia and are thinking about going back into nursing, $14,000 in bursaries and grants to cover their application fees, travel, um, and uh, any training that they might need to get up to speed to get back onto the hospital floor. Right. And speaking of training, we heard from the head of the BC Nurses Union saying that there are waiting lists for people to get into nursing schools. Can we train more nurses here too? We can. Uh, it's, it's a lengthier process uh, to train nurses, but we need to be looking to the future as well. We can't rely on international nurses uh, going forward, uh, but we can in the short term. And so uh, what we're looking for is to bring those nurses that have the skills and abilities off of the sidelines and, and other jobs into nursing where they want to be as quickly as possible. But looking forward, we have uh, added more than 600 spaces to post-secondary institutions that train nurses. Uh, so that uh, people who are interested in a career in nursing, and it's a, it's a great job, so people who are interested in supporting people or in help and, and, and need support, in distress and need help and support, it's a great job for them. Uh, th- those spaces are opening in uh, post-secondary institutions in our province to address those wait lists as well. So do you foresee more steps coming to address this nursing shortage then? This isn't the end? Yeah, the, I mean, so many British Columbians are seeing the strain. Our healthcare system is under it. Uh, uh, everything from the continuing impact of COVID to the respiratory flu uh, season that we've seen a record number of patients in hospital. Uh, this is just part of our work on healthcare. It's about making the system work more efficiently, uh, getting people who need to be in long-term care out of hospital beds and into long-term care beds, uh, opening new hospitals to support fast-growing communities. Uh, so this nursing announcement uh, follows on a similar announcement around internationally trained doctors. Uh, new deals with family doctors. Focus on healthcare is a major priority for our government, and you'll see more from us on this today. Okay, and I also want to talk to you about housing as well. This is also a big priority for you. We've been hearing from people this morning about stratas that are voting to convert themselves to 55 plus to avoid this uh, rental rule that your government brought in. Is that a loophole that you think needs to be closed at this point? Because I've heard from a lot of people who say this is going on. Yeah, I, I've heard the same. Uh, there's, a, there's a strata in my constituency that's looking at doing this. I met with the uh, strata council president to talk about what their perspective was. Uh, it's a new program, and so we'll be monitoring this carefully. But it's important to note uh, that we have a lot of seniors that are looking for a place to rent. Uh, and this may actually be helpful uh, to, uh, to ensure that seniors have uh, high-quality seniors housing that's available for them to rent. Uh, and uh, and it's not really a loophole. The idea was that uh, we would be preserving seniors' housing. This is uh, potentially actually good news for seniors that are looking for a place to rent. Um, we'll monitor it carefully uh, to make sure that uh, it rolls out as intended, but the, 
the age restriction was left in place to make sure that seniors have safe uh, places and uh, and places with other seniors that are at the same stage of life uh, and uh, and having seniors who are at risk of homelessness, for example, because they can't find a place to rent, know that there are places like this available for them to rent could be actually very good news. Right. But are you worried, though, that it seems like there might be a lot of them doing it just to avoid having to rent out their, their places? Yeah, I think um, they'll, they'll, they may be surprised to see how many seniors are looking for a place to rent. Um, the, the change was that you're not allowed to say people aren't allowed to rent anymore. Uh, there are seniors looking for a place to rent. Uh, absolutely, we have a shortage of rental housing. And so, uh, core to your point, uh, we need to increase the number of places that are available for people to rent. And, and we'll have an announcement on Thursday about what we're doing to make sure that more rental housing is available. Um, but in the interim, making sure that those condos aren't sitting empty and are being rented out to a senior that's looking for a place to rent. That's actually good news, and that's what the intention of the policy change was. Okay, so there's more announcements coming on housing, but is this something then you can say you'll continue to monitor? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly significant shift. So uh, any strata that was built before 2010 had the ability to restrict rentals. You know, I had a really great experience in my constituency. This young woman came up to me and said, listen, I'm so glad you changed that rule around stratas because I moved in with my boyfriend and I was leaving my condolency and I felt awful about it in the housing crisis. And now I've been able to rent it out. So thanks for doing that. And that person who moved into her condo has a place to rent. Now, it's having an impact for British Columbians right now. Uh, and uh, But like any policy change, we've got to monitor and make sure it doesn't have unintended consequences. Okay. And on the issue of housing, I know it's hard to find good people. I want you to have a little listen to somebody who thinks they might, they might be able to help out. So it'd be nice to do something, but you know, um, I'm not uh, I'm not desperate for work or anything. So I'm not I'm not uh, I'm just saying I'm I'm prepared and, and and interested. But it's up to others to decide whether they think I can help. I think he means you. That's former Premier Glenn Clark talking on the Jazz Joe Hall show yesterday. He says he wants to help out. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Glenn's a remarkable guy, and uh, and having led the Patterson Group for a, a long period of time, uh, one of the largest companies uh, in the province, uh, if not the largest private company. Uh, he brings a lot of experience and knowledge on a whole array of different issues and uh, certainly glad to have him uh, uh, volunteering to help the government. That's great news uh, and uh, and look forward to working with him and frankly, uh, with any British Columbian that, uh, that brings uh, uh, experience and expertise in the private sector, not-for-profit sector. Um, we need to all hands on deck on many of the challenges we face right now. One of the jobs that keeps coming up, I guess, is the head of BC Housing, and that's such an important part of your package of things that you're trying to do with housing. When do you foresee perhaps getting some leadership in place there, making those changes? Uh, BC Housing has an executive uh, search committee in place right now to identify candidates, uh, people who have that kind of expertise in housing, and uh, in particular around working in the nonprofit sector related to housing uh, in British Columbia or in other places. I uh, really encourage them to reach out to the board. Uh, that uh, process is underway right now. Uh, and, uh, and I'm hopeful in the next few months we'll have the names to announce of, uh, of a candidate uh, for the CEO. It's an incredibly important role for our government's priorities and for all British Columbians that are looking for a decent place to live. Well, listen, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. That's Premier David Eby talking about not just housing, but also nurses, which is what we started out talking about there. And the fact that they are changing some things to help encourage more internationally trained nurses to come to this province. We have a nursing shortage. So that combined with, you know, getting more people involved, getting them into the system, will that help out? Now, if you want to weigh in, if you're in the system... Let me hear what you have to say too. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604 331
800-636-2899. Now, also, while I had him, I also wanted to talk about the issue of housing and the strata issue that so many of you uh, have been weighing in on this issue of the 55-plus age restriction. Is it a good thing or is it not a good thing? So they deliberately kept that open. They allowed stratas that are 55-plus to be exempt from having to uh, allow people to rent out their condo if they want to. If you're not a 55-plus building, you will now you know, be, have, to, have to allow people to rent out their unit if they want to. So are a lot of stratas switching to 55 plus to avoid that? Well, you heard the premier there say he doesn't think it's necessarily a terrible thing to have stratas switch over. He thinks it will help seniors with housing. But you have to wonder at what point will it be too many buildings deciding to do that? Because I'm hearing from a lot of you saying that, yeah, buildings are considering doing this. You can email me your thoughts, simi at cknw.com, or call or text our buzz line on that. I have a feeling that discussion is going to continue. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about recycling, shall we? Because there are some changes that you need to know about. Recycling System is now accepting a, a pretty wide array of single-use plastic items, and these are new. As of last Friday, you could start putting these in your box. So let's run through this with the help of Anne Danilevich, who is a manager of stakeholder relations at Western Canada for Recycle BC. Anne, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Sunny. This is a pretty big upgrade to the recycling system, isn't it? That's right. Um, we have two exciting changes to the Recycle BC program that came into effect that make recycling a greater variety of items more convenient for residents. So the two changes are, like you uh, just mentioned, a new expanded materials list for packaging and packaging like products. And we've also introduced a new collection category, a depot. So, um, the new expanded materials list will allow these items to be collected and managed by recycling and ultimately keep them out of landfills. Okay, let's start with the new blue box items. What can we now put in there? So things like plastic plates, bowls and cups, uh, plastic cutlery, plastic food storage containers, uh, plastic hangers that come with clothing, uh, paper plates, bowls and cups with a thin plastic lining, food containers, the aluminum foil. Uh, aluminum uh, foil baking dishes and pie plates. Of course, many many of these items are single use and we often throw them away after one use, but we encourage residents to reuse what they can and recycle what can't be reused or has already been used a few times. Um, there's also a few items that go into with your paper recycling. So things like paper party decor, um, as well as, you know, moving boxes and gift boxes. Okay, that's a lot. So how how does that reflect and, and get changed at your end of things? And so what does Recycled BC have to do when you add all these new items? You know, um, they were, they're being collected through our uh, collection, uh, our contractors. So on, on our end, it's, uh, it is uh, business as usual, but for the last two years, we were really gearing up for the acceptance of these items to make sure that once they are able to be accepted, which is right now, that we are ready. Okay, that's good. So it is right now. And also, let's talk about the depot changes, too. What, what does that mean for people who want to bring their items to the depot? So the biggest change is this new uh, category called flexible plastics. So before, for example, when residents would go to a depot to drop off items, um, such as some of these new items also that are now accepted at depots like uh, plastic sandwich and freezer bags, uh, plastic 
plastic drop sheets and coverings, even uh, plastic bubble wrap. So before, when you would go to the depot, materials would go into two categories. They would either go into plastic bags with overwrap or things like uh, crinkly plastic packaging, the kind that your salad comes in, that would go into other flexible plastic packaging. Right, so it's a little confusing, and yeah. we simplified the process. So now there's just one bin, and all of these soft plastics can now go into that one bin at the depot, um, including new squishy cushion or polyethylene foam. Um, so that's a new uh, item that's been added that can now be recycled, and that goes into uh, the depot. Oh, bubble wrap. I think the bubble wrap thing is huge. Oh, yeah. Definitely. A lot of bubble wrap in there. So this, okay, so this is going to be taking effect right away then. That's an expansion of Recycle BC does. Has it been hard to find places to get all of these items recycled? Are new places coming online because of the demand to recycle more stuff? Well, based on that research into the end fate of these materials, we, uh, for example, for the flexible plastics, it's been determined that it can be recycled in the same way. So it can now be collected together. Uh, but we work with some great partners uh, locally in, and in the Pacific Northwest to be, make sure that all these materials are collected and are recycled responsibly. Right. And how does BC rank when it comes to items that we recycle? I would say BC is uh, world class, really one of the best programs in the world. Uh, 86% of the materials that come in is really managed by recycling. And uh, when it comes to plastics in particular, 97% of the plastics that we collect actually process right here in BC at a local facility. All right. So this is all taking effect right now. People can start adding this. I I almost feel like, Anne, you're going to have to make these blue boxes bigger. (laughs) Well, we definitely want to encourage people to recycle because residents really need to do their part. And that's, you know, to set out clean, sorted materials for collection. And to take items like flexible plastics and hazardous items to depots so they can be recycled appropriately and be kept at our landfills in our environment. All right. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Simi. That is Anne Danilevich, who is the Manager, Stakeholder Relations in Western Canada for Recycle BC and MMSW. Talking about the expansion of the recycling program. So this is good for you. More stuff to go into your blue box. Although when I look around my neighborhood, I would say the blue boxes are already very full, if not to overflowing. This is more stuff that you can now put in there, including plastic plates, bowls, cups, cutlery, straws, all plastic, of course, plastic food storage containers, Plastic hangers, these are the ones that you get when you buy clothing, Uh, paper plates, bowls and cups, aluminum foil, and aluminum foil baking dishes and pie plates. Now, I generally wash these, right, and keep them and use them over again. But if at some point you get tired of them, now they can also go into your blue bin, which is big. And if you're one of those people who also saves all of the plastic plastic, you know, freezer bags and, and, and drop sheets and, and bubble wrap and all of those things, these can now also be recycled, but you have to take those to the depot if you would like to do that. On our way in, simi at cknw.com.